This is the Wealth and Law Podcast, a podcast about the intersection of personal wealth and the legal landscape. We'll take a deep dive into relevant topics. We'll basically teach you what we know, and we'll engage with guests with deep expertise in their field. We hope that you'll enjoy this episode and many more episodes. So please join us on this journey as we try to bring you relevant information that is both timely and important for you to know in order to engage in this area of the world. Welcome to the Wealth Law Podcast. You know, you might have remembered that there was a pandemic, and during the pandemic, some countries have been more locked down than others, I think it's fair to say. And one of those is our largest trading partner, China. And China, you also might have read in the news, is starting to open up. That got me thinking, we probably should discuss planning for Chinese clients because there's a good chance when they can travel again, They'll be coming to the U.S. and thinking about investing here or moving here. And we're a very open place to allow people to do that. But once they do, there are certain planning and, and tax considerations that people should know about. So to talk about that sort of thing, you need somebody who knows something about it. And that's why Tony Yu is with me. Tony, thanks for joining. Thank you, Brent, for having me as guest. So for the few people, Tony, who don't know who you are, why don't you give us at least the high level? Okay. Uh, Brent, I am a uh, uh, estate planner, a trust attorney by, uh, by training, by trade. I used to work at Holland and Knight. And then uh, 13 years ago, I took over my family insurance agency. And so now I'm more of a generalist doing uh, succession planning. And because I was born in Taiwan, because I speak Mandarin, uh, and just because of the, the, the market demands and needs, I just been spending a lot of time with the Chinese speaking market on succession planning, wealth transfer, um, and also wealth planning related, not just to trust itself, but just generally, generally speaking, passing on wealth to the next generation for NRA non-resident aliens. Yeah, and you're you're in the LA area. I can't remember if you said that or not, but uh, no, you're you're well positioned. There's such a strong and like really big sort of Chinese expat community in LA. So I'm not surprised to hear that. Yeah, that's correct. So so I can just camp out at the airport, Brent, and I can just have new customers <laughs> walk in every, you know, every six hours. Yeah. It's it's definitely a good flow here. Yeah. Well, so I think sometimes it's helpful for, for planning for non uh non non-resident aliens. That's the, the term in the tax code, but you're talking for say not for non-Americans from a particular country to first get an idea of the culture because every place is a little different. I mean, people are, are just really the same people are people, but the culture of different places are, are unique and it, and it creates different levels of motivation or different sort of paths of motivation for people to want to come here. So what is it like for you, your perspective for these clients when you, from their view of being here or, or, investing here what's the motivation for them yeah so so brent like you said earlier uh with the uh, pandemic shutdown in china there is uh growing concern uh resentment towards the current political situation in china so with that said there is a strong desire to move money out uh move spouse and children out uh, move the whole family out. So I, I would say the non-U.S. Uh, persons coming over just there's different motivations, but a lot of it 
if you dig really deep, uh, it lies in with some insecurity about uh, wealth, insecurity about personal safety, just because the political environment in China is very, it's it's a autocratic uh, system, and um, the communist government can pretty much wipe out a whole sector of economy, not just one business. Uh, and one one quick example is uh, a couple years ago, the government decided they want to equalize learning, and so they just shut down overnight all private tutoring, private education industries that were publicly listed, all these big companies overnight just wiped out completely. So that scares a lot of businesses and scares a lot of business owners. And so their motivations coming over really is uh, personal safety, uh, wealth safety, and just uh, opportunities for their children. I would say, I think, like you said, it, it goes across all cultures, right? Just, you know, protecting your own your own brood and making sure everybody's safe and have a chance to grow. Yeah, that's so true. It, it does. It cuts across cultures for sure. Those sorts of motive, those sort of like personal family motivations are they're really the same everywhere. Um, you know, it doesn't really matter what you read in the news. In in politics, politics is not humans, and humans have similar motivations wherever they're from. I'm I'm curious. Are you seeing clients who are we're already in clients to come to to the U.S. market, or are you seeing clients maybe who have tested other markets and been dissatisfied with those markets as well? So, you know, your typical like Singapore's or Australia's or you know Malaysia's, Indonesia's that are closer to China that do get a lot of that outflow. Uh, great question, Brent. Um, th this flow from China probably started uh, ten to twelve years ago. Um, but with the pandemic, with um, a the the past presidential uh, administration, uh, that there was anti-China bias. So a lot of Chinese immigrants decided to step away from America and explore other parts of the world. So so exactly right. Uh, right now, another very popular option is Singapore. And Singapore, it used to be Hong Kong, but now Hong Kong is uh, reunified with China. But Singapore has um, lower taxes or no tax in certain aspects. Uh, Singapore has uh, just a lot of flexibility uh, and there's a lot of uh, there's a cottage in industry of uh, family offices and trust companies set up there to kind of steward these uh, the, the money parked over there. So in Singapore, they a lot of them can speak Chinese. So uh, I think the if you dig down deep here is probably familiarity with language, familiarity with culture. Uh, and, and geographically much closer to China than having to fly 13 hours to LA. Um, but I would say LA, United States, it's still uh, viewed by many Chinese nationals as um, more stable, uh, a bigger. I mean, you, if you compare Singapore, Singapore is, I don't know, size of Santa Barbara or whatever. Uh, so, so it's really kind of hard to compare um, you know, the geographic size and the might of the American economy and, and, and the land of opportunities uh, as as Chinese people still view, view it. Uh, but but Singapore is very popular. And then there's also very many island countries, uh, you know, people buying passports and residencies, um, just throwing money and, and just, you know, going to Cyprus, going to Greece, going to Malta. Um, but those are, I would say, probably their peace of mind escape valve 
mentality because you know so at the end of the day they're gonna want a few different options and that's that's what the wealthy that's what they can pay for options indeed they can yeah well let's talk about some of those options here then um and that's really interesting I, and by the way I, I think that's super helpful to have that background so people get an idea of, of sort of the texture of, of folks who are are leaving china you know we're going to be focused on the u.s but you know they're really looking for for uh, uh, friendly places to go, and there are other places in the world that are friendly too. And they it does end up, I, at least from my experience, it does end up sometimes that they they go to those places. It becomes a little bit of a of a landing pad, and then they jump to the U.S. from there. And now they they kind of have their hands in not not just two countries; they have their hands in two, you know, three or four countries. So when they come here. You know, from your perspective, what do you think are kind of the the tried and true, say, go to enter the U.S. market moves for the clients that you see? Yeah, so so just from a lifestyle perspective, um, they when they come here, uh, the the most typical playbook, if you will, is uh, they will buy a home. Uh, they they always buy a home first. It's their it's a Chinese mentality to own real estate because it's it's tangible. Um, it, it grows and, and the concept is also in China. If you had owned a home in Beijing uh, 20 years ago, it has gone up 40x. Uh, so so in their mentality, it's ingrained that it's yeah, safe and, and and prosperous. Um, so, so real estate, buying a home is mo most common. They will probably buy a home before, way before they get a green card. So they won't even rent, they just buy. Um, and, and so again, it's because the, 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 the perceived uh, value of a home, but also they think that it's a great investment. So home is, is the first thing they do. And, and Brent, as you can go into that immediately sets up the trap for taxes. Um, but, but I'll let you go into that. So the home is first. Um, and then, you know, the different channels they come is uh, like an EB-5 program where they in, in invest in business and get the green card that way. And, you know, in prior administration, that was definitely shut down and very difficult to get for Chinese nationals. Um, but and then people started doing L1s, um, some type of foreign company working U.S. So they find their ways. Uh, but but taking another step back, uh, I would say there's um, three different uh, three different ways to touch the United States. One would be investment only, investment only. So whole family still stays in China or they can't get out. Um, the other, the second uh, uh, possibility is they send their uh, children, they're, they're usually the wife, send the wife and the children to the U.S. and the husband still stays in China because there's a lot of business opportunities still there or they just can't get out. They may be a government official or a highly visible, successful business owner. Um, and then the third option um, is the is the family where they get rid of everything. They just they just they clean up. They say this is not worth it. I don't want to play the game anymore. I sell everything. I liquidate and I just decamp from China and wholly move to the U.S. So those are the three different types of uh, possibilities. Um, but but and then and then so with that said. They would invest in in the real estate and then of course the stocks um, and then after a while they get bored because they are such such successful business owners they start looking for business opportunities to invest in um, so so th those are the different things that that usually happens oh and then the last thing is they also 
end up purchasing some form of life insurance. And the life insurance there, other than tax reasons, um, the life insurance, personal motivation wise, is you have to think, you know, they used to make millions and millions of dollars a year and all of a sudden they don't make anymore. And so the mentality is, well, I better kind of put a little leverage on this nest egg. Uh, or what if I die early and my, my younger children don't have much in the future? So there's psychological mentalities for purchasing life insurance uh, in addition to all the other stocks and houses and uh, businesses that they, they, they put money into in the U.S. Yeah, that's such a great list. And it's funny you say, uh, you know, the trap. That's really all of those things are the cheese to the trap. <laughs> all of those things are the... Uh, the thing that attracts you in and then you can get trapped in the u.s system so the you know the first one on your list i think was the house uh this is not unique to folks from china but uh you know buying buying u.s real estate of some variety it doesn't always have to be a house but it, you know often it is a house um you know as you and i know well it it causes issues the first one that always jumps out to me particularly when somebody is not a a citizen of the U.S. and they're not resident here yet, so they haven't moved here, or they don't mean to move here permanently. That's really what it means. Uh, so let's say they don't have their green card yet; they haven't come here on a permanent basis. Maybe they only have uh, in, in a sort of employee temporary work visa, for example, like you were mentioning. Um, well, they have an estate tax exemption of sixty thousand dollars. And everything above that is subject to a 40% estate tax. And of course, all real estate in California is worth more than $60,000. <laughs> I'm sure there are exceptions, but you wouldn't want to buy it. So, so it's, it's an immediately a problem, immediately. Uh, yeah, d definitely. And, and, you know, it's really interesting why logic would speak. Why don't they speak to an advisor? Uh, why don't they talk to somebody that kind of sets up the structure? And I, I've asked myself this many, many times, but I think I think it's um, it, it's the flow, the sequence of people they meet. Right. So they meet a immigration person uh, that will help them to do the, the whole arrangement. And then when they come here, it's usually, uh, you know, there's a personal driver that's arranged and then there, you know, and then the most helpful person is usually the realtor, right? Because that's where they want to make their, their sale and build a relationship. So, I, you know, you're not going to have lawyers uh, waiting at the airport, you know, just, just really uh, serving them hand and feet and, and giving them advice at the same time. So I really think it's because of the sequence of the people they meet and they kind of just say, hey, this person's really nice to me and it makes sense to buy real estate and they just do it. And then uh, a year later, once they kind of figure things out, they're like, oh, darn it, what do I do? Um, and that's where we do. We tell them there's really no good options, uh, Brad. No, there aren't. Unfortunately, I think you're totally right. By the way, in the the sequencing of like the the connections they have to professional advisors, again, this is not unique to people from China, but um, in there, in the sort of uh, home buying process, is the realtor. The realtor has no idea. They don't know anything about taxes. They can barely understand their own taxes, let alone understand estate tax and how it would work for a non-resident. They just want to close deals. That's all they that their problem Correct. is closing deals. Correct. So, yeah, it's super common and there's not a lot of easy ways out of it. There's no tax-free way out of it, really. Um, 
there are some maybe sort of more complicated ways you might be able to get out of it um, that are probably way beyond our discussion today. But I think the main one is the last thing that you mentioned, which is buying life insurance. You're kind of talking about it as a replacement for income. But once you once they own that house, and in essence, they have a, a, a lingering or potential estate tax issue, life insurance can then step in to be a way that at least you can provide the liquidity to pay off the estate tax. Because what will happen is if you're trying to project yourself into, into the future, mom or dad, they buy this house in Southern California. It's lovely. Then they die. Now the kids are sad, but they don't want the house. And so they want to sell it. Well, they can't sell it because it has a lien on it for estate taxes. And so until the estate tax is paid, you can't get the lien release from the federal government. And if you don't have the cash to pay the estate tax, you get stuck in a little bit of a of logical loop where like you have real estate, you have to sell the real estate to pay the estate tax, but you have to pay the estate tax to release the lien or the estate tax that's on the real estate and around and around. So if you've got a pot of liquidity from life insurance, it's handy and it can it can sort of smooth the process because you're going to have to pay the estate tax anyways. Yeah, so so the the most common um planning there is it, it's very convenient for a, a non-US person to buy insurance w- with that tax code saying, you know, that encouraging uh if the if the foreigner is a the owner and insured that this asset is not even including their state tax so that that's a very nice uh, handy dandy tool so so we always you know explain that to the client and then we say well a client before you uh become a u.s person uh well you can use that, that that's an intangible asset you can gift it into some type of a trust so that type of uh monitoring of of the class of asset or or the ownership of the asset and moving it around as part of a bigger planning is very useful. But but like you said, Brent, you know the life insurance, uh, if purchased properly, uh, and and I because I, I work on both sides of the ledger, the the, the trust planning side and the um, insurance side. I definitely think the insurance. Um, th- there are certain products that are not very suitable. The investment style products. You got to be really, really cautious. I, I'm not gonna bash the industry, uh, but just be careful. Uh, what's the most suitable for the client? Explain all the traps. And I tend to find a guarantee product uh, is the most suitable for succession planning. And, and that's just my personal bias. I explain the client you know pros and cons, and I just kind of let them decide. But anytime you try to invest, try to do some investments through an insurance policy, there really are a lot of heavy built-in fees that will create a drag on the performance of a policy. I, I much rather the client uh, buy buy less policy from me uh, and invest uh, the remainder elsewhere and just buy enough for what they need to do for succession planning. That that's the right way to do a holistic planning. So that's just my recommendation. Oh, so you're not you're not selling MPI style life insurance for these clients. <laughs> what a shock. <laughs> you know, to to each their own. Uh everybody has different appetite, desires. I, I just try to be really fair and just explain, hey, you gotta watch out for this. And I would say ninety-nine point nine percent, you know, these business owners are smart. They've seen so much. They're much smarter than me. 
And, and when you explain it, the logically, they're like, they freak out. And 99% of the time they say, Tony, you're right. And I appreciate that. And so we just mm -hmm. take care of one client. I'm not going to make the most money, Brent, but uh, we take care of one client at a time and explain to them what's the best way for them. And I sleep all at night. I don't have to worry yeah. about them kicking my butt. You've got, you still have that law license to worry. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. So I think that's, that's a good, a really good business plan for you, Tony. I'm not going to lie. Uh, that's, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm with you. I can bash the industry because I'm not an industry. I don't have, to, I don't have uh, uh, an insurance license. I get a little bit nervous about investment style insurance policies as a slight tangent here, because in essence, in my, in my view, which may be an ignorant view, there, what you're really doing is buying a derivative contract uh, because it's a promise from the life insurance company to pay you something that's that's based off of an index. You know, the performance of an index will determine the terms of the contract and what they owe you on the contract. That's a derivative. Correct. That's correct. So are you an expert in derivatives? I'm not asking you hypothetically, you know, you hypothetical person, are you an expert in derivatives? The answer, of course, is no. Almost no one is an expert in derivatives. So why would you be buying derivatives? And so it's a, always a little bit of a strange conundrum to me to sort of but, but, get but my just, brain wrapped around, it, wrapped around it. But 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 adding to that comment is even if you were the super expert in derivatives, the fact that there is a cost of insurance that's deducted internally from the policy yeah. every single year and that increases every single year, even if you're the yeah. most super expert in the world, if you make a misstep at all, you will just be behind the projected schedule because they're just such yeah. heavy expenses. And as you get older, you know, past 70 years old, the annual expense is just exponential. And so that, that's the challenge. That's the part where it really challenges yeah. people. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, that's right. It's just, yes, that's exactly right. It's like the simple math is some number minus another number is a smaller number. And <laughs> some number minus a bigger number is a much smaller number. But Brent, going back to the, the Chinese nationals, yeah, they, they are right. becoming... It's all sidetracked. <laughs> you know, they, they are becoming more sophisticated. They are um, compared to 10, 12 years ago. And it would be because I would say some of the first wave or the second wave go back to their home country and say, hey, I got duped by this. Um, I got rushed into the house. And so uh, things spread. So I would say uh, for uh, audience members out there who work or want to work in the Chinese space, um, definitely your your preparation and sophistication uh, is needed because uh, they, they are getting more wary and more cautious and, and, and it, it, as it should be. So the prepared and, and ethical advisors are going to shine more and more because the, the market is catching up to, you know, um, to, to to the 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 need of the the, the market just needs good advisors and 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 smart advisors. Yeah, too true, too true. The the sort of middle piece here, we skipped over it. I skipped over it, not you. I can't impugn you here. But I, the the middle piece here then is the you know they they decide they want to uh, say invest in U.S. equities or they want to invest in uh, U.S. companies. Both situations can create similar types of estate tax issues, if not done cautiously. Uh, uh, the difference is that with the, with the exception of what are called business intangibles, if you sell a capital asset and you're a non-resident, non-citizen for income tax purposes, um, then you don't have to pay capital gains in the US. So those, those situations, from my view, 
sometimes are easier to say unwind and then replan because you can sometimes get out of them without having to pay any capital gains tax. If it's a real business, like a real operating business, it's a little harder. Just they don't necessarily want to sell the business, but you know, typical, you know, Apple stock, whatever. Those can be liquidated, liquidated, not paying capital gains, and they just sort of reset the table in the way that you want, the way that people like you and I would want. Yeah, you know, to, to that point, Brent. Um, you know, when I first started out, I have these fancy ten-page questionnaires, working with clients, and you know, as rookies do. Uh, but after a while, I, I get down straight to the point and ask them, do you want control or do you not want control? <laughs> and and that's the bottom line. If they want control, they keep it to themselves under their uh, NRA status. And, and like you said, capital gains are, are it's free. If they don't, if they're willing to part with control and, and, and bring money over and put in some type of irrevocable trust, um, they lose that benefit, but there's a whole other side of uh, planning benefits that, that pops up. Um, and so I, I don't even bother with the nine page, 10 page questionnaires anymore, Brent. We just get straight down You've to learned. the. <laughs> well, well I, I say very similar things to clients, by the way, and um, which I'm, by the way, not surprised to learn that we think similarly on that. But the, Sometimes I'll tell clients because uh, we'll also also explain sort of the options and they'll, and they'll say, well, that sounds that sounds complicated. I don't want so and so to do whatever. I'll say, well, look, there's either simple or there's control. There, that's it. You want it simple, which of course means it's going to be less expensive. Then you'll have no control. If you want it, to, if you want to maintain control, in definitely in some way in the future forever, it's going to be more complicated. Be more expensive, so then you're layering in irrevocable trusts with very specific provisions in them, and very specific provisions going on and on and on for the future. If they want it very simple, then it's not going to be an irrevocable trust. It's going to be, you know, something almost that approximates them. I I usually, if I was going to start from scratch, let's say somebody came to me, say, hey, we're we're moving from Shanghai. We've had a great run there. It's a lovely city, but we want to move to LA. And we're going to buy a home. Then I think my next question would be, well, you know, what's your status going to be when you come here? You know, are you really are you really immigrating, or are you just dipping your foot in in the pond, so to speak? And if they're really immigrating, I think the answer is is one thing. And if they're not really immigrating and they're just sort of testing the waters, then the answer is something else. Do you think it's a clear divide in that way? Oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. That's exact. That's exactly the the three different. You know, like, do they just want to do investments here? Are they going to throw some uh, family members here, or are they going to come all together? So, uh, yeah. absolutely, yeah. That's the very, very clear divide. So, if they're not immigrating here, then usually what I would tell them is that they would form a revocable trust. Um, and the real revocable trust becomes a substitute for them, except the trust doesn't get sick and die, which I like because humans, they all get sick and die. And then below that, they might form some sort of non-US company that we might view as a corporation here. And then that company will do the investing. And then with that company sitting there in between them, the non-citizen, non-resident of the US and their investments in the US, there's no estate tax issue. So we've sort of figured out the estate tax problem right off the bat. 
Is that similar for you? Uh, yes, yes, yes. Uh, f- at least for the stock side, right? Uh, with the real estate side. Yes. I-, I think you add another layer, Brett. You could, yeah. Actually, so. What do you I'll, recommend I'll, there? Yeah, I'll do one of two. I'll do one of two. It really depends on the 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 flavor of the client. Let's say, you know, what flavor they prefer. One option is you actually create maybe under this foreign company structure a U.S. company. That is a, a U.S. C corporation, and that corporation owns the real estate. For Americans, this is a terrible way to buy real estate. But for foreigners, it can be a pretty good way to buy real estate. If they're willing to, like you were talking about, if they're willing to give up control, then sometimes I'll say, okay, cool. We'll form a U.S. trust. And you, client, you're not the beneficiary of the trust, I'm sorry to say, but your family is the beneficiary. And maybe we'll, we'll fund in that trust enough liquidity for the trust to buy the real estate and now there's a, an american person in essence corporate trust is sort of an american person owning the real estate and that's actually a good way to own u.s real estate if you have an, an american owner so you know the u.s c corp would be an american owner the trust could be an american owner the c corp is a little more cumbersome the trust is a little less cumbersome from an ownership perspective and sort of a tax perspective i think but again it's like like we're saying it's like well what do you what do you like what is the thing that you're willing to do and then based on what they like and they're willing to do, then you, then you can sort of piece together the picture that matches up with that. Because you wouldn't want to make somebody give up control of money that they really want to keep control of because they'll be very Correct. unhappy with you. Correct. Hey, Brent, what, what is the other option that you offer them uh, other than the the, C-Corp, the foreign corp owning a C-Corp? What's the other you were mentioning? Yeah, you. I mean, you could – you technically could just have – the foreign corp own the real estate directly or a foreign trust own the real estate directly. But you, and you, in, in those arrangements, you can do it in a way that doesn't cause estate tax issues. As long as the ultimate owner is not the the human or the human doesn't have total control over the structure outside of the U S but you still run into some income tax issues. The main one is, is what's called FERPTA. Um, and so you still you haven't eliminated the, the issue with FERPTA. To to get around FERPTA, you have to have an American as the an American taxpayer, I should say, as the ultimate owner of the real estate. And you can, you know, you can kind of mix and match these things. So for example, if you're gonna do a a, a trust, like a an irrevocable trust, let's say it's gonna be outside the US. It's because they're like, yeah, we don't want to be in the US so much. We still want to keep things outside but we want to have some level of control then sometimes we're thinking well maybe it'll be a trust for your spouse maybe not for you but it'll be for the spouse we haven't figured out FERPTA but if they're okay with that then at least it can be in the trust you can have some estate tax protection but it's like really close you know like it's not you but it's your spouse so it's as close it's like one degree away from you but maybe you can do some estate tax planning that way so yeah, there's no I I have yet to find a single perfect answer for every single person. It depends exactly on what you were describing like what are they willing to do? What are they hoping to be able to do? And then figuring out what matches with that. Yeah, and Brent and then um the other common factor common occurrence is the husband sending the wife 
and the kids here and the wife becomes green card. And I'm sure the uh, audience members that listen to this podcast, uh, there will at least be half of them that, that you know, half of the popular, you know, the listeners that have this type of uh, fact pattern. What, what do you recommend there, Brent, for, for uh, you know, green card wife, green mm-hmm. card children, and are a uh, dad, father, husband? Yeah. Well, the, the upside is that you as a non-resident can gift as much as you want to your spouse free of tax in the U.S. So that would be my first thought is, well, maybe we'll just give this to the spouse. Um, because once they're here, the spouse does not have a $60,000 exemption from a state tax. They have a north of $12 million exemption from a state tax. And so you have a lot more flexibility for them. And so that's using the first thing that I'm thinking. If they if they don't want to give it to the spouse directly, then perhaps we'd put it into some form of a trust for that spouse and maybe for, for the kids. Uh, but again, because you've got Americans, you're looking, if you want to solve this FERPTA riddle, you're looking to use the Americans as taxpayers. And if you need to do some estate tax planning, the gifting cannot be to those Americans directly. It needs to be into a trust for them. But again, because you can gift freely assets that are not, sorry, assets that are not tangible assets in the U.S. So you can't buy the real estate, then do the gifting. But if, if dad just has the cash he's going to use to buy the real estate, we can figure out a way to gift the cash, say, into a trust for mom and the kids, even if it's north of the 12 million amount. And that will be a gift tax free transaction, no, no tax in the U.S. And now it's inside the trust wrapper and it can be protected from estate tax. And you can solve the riddle of, of FERPTA. So there's a lot more flexibility once you have an American in the picture, and you're trying to on you're trying to inbound cash liquidity. Um. So what what do you advise your clients on the firewalls? So yes, the flexibility is nice, but how do you prevent upon a spouse's death? of the IRS saying, hey, uh, they, they are all together, they're community property, or uh, how do you firewall that stuff, uh, Brent? Yeah, it's a good point because you do, if you set up a, uh, for let's say in my hypothetical, you, you're you setting up this irrevocable trust for your spouse. Well, your spouse, the American, cannot make any contributions of their property to that trust. And then in that case, you're trying to rely on the local law of of where the money is coming from and if the local law from where the money is coming from says that it's community property then you have to if it's possible undo the community property character of of that asset so that it's all owned solely by in our hypothetical husband who's the non-resident so that he can gift property that is solely his not his spouse's into the trust you're right that's sort of the firewall you have to be really careful and if there's if there's even a if there's a doubt where we're just not comfortable enough that we've we've adequately controlled for that factor and you can never know 100% like the IRS can take whatever position they want but if you don't feel comfortable enough then we would not make the spouse the beneficiary of the trust we would make it the kids so then you can make the gift into the trust whether it came from non-resident husband or resident wife or spouse is immaterial because neither of them are going to be beneficiaries of the trust. And then that kind of cuts the cord for estate tax purposes when either of them die. Yep, I completely agree, Brent. 
this, yeah, I mean, it's, as people are probably getting the flavor for it here, you know, we were setting up the scenario of, you know, it's, it's great, you know, uh, people who are successful or entrepreneurial or, or kind of business minded wanting to, to move from China or some other jurisdiction and then move into the US, all of that is the exciting part. And then you run into this weird thicket of rules. We just have to find, you know, people like you and I have to find ways to, to navigate through the thicket of rules and explain it well enough so people can understand it. That's the big secret, I think. So, so make sure you get your, uh, your uh, whatever Babylon or uh, language learning tool, Brent. Yeah. You, can, uh, you can brush up your Chinese, Brent. That's why I have you, Tony. That's why I have you. <laughs> Nobody has to pay me for my Mandarin. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so I, you know, as we were just chatting here, I, I think there's a couple of cultural things I, I do also want to share with the audience. Sure. Uh, I think number one is um, I think any audience members that want to play in the Chinese market, uh, it's definitely helpful to find a friend, uh, a partner that speaks the language. I think uh, a lot of a lot of these, as you can expect, going to foreign countries, you don't want to be duped. Uh, so there is a high level of wariness, uh, cautiousness, and speaking the language, uh, you know, de-escalates that that tension like 50% at least. So I think having somebody that speaks the language helps a lot. Uh, the second thing is uh, cultural-wise, um, you know, audience members working Chinese clients, don't be shocked when you hear very nice pleasantries. And I, this is just, you know, my own personal experience he, because I, I grew up in the United States. So... I've been here 39 years, um, and so uh, even I would had to kind of learn as I go. Is you know sometimes after a meeting, I, I feel like I nailed it. I I, I just I, I hit their heart, solved their problems. They're they're gonna give me a Nobel Prize type of feeling, and then uh, I don't hear from them for like ever, right? <laughs> and I was like, what happened? I thought we were gonna you know like have a dating relationship, you know, business speak wise. Um, and, and it's because Chinese people were very polite. And so just, you know, for audience members, uh, culturally, if you get the super nice, polite responses and feedback, uh, that may not be, that, that may be their polite way of saying thank, no thank you. Uh, versus clients that actually ask a lot of questions that really seem kind of annoying, they're actually the ones that are testing your metal and really want to work with you. At least this is from a Chinese cultural perspective. So, so Brent, you, you, you asked me to come, come join you on your podcast to kind of have a cultural flavor, but I would say that that's also, that that's a lesson I've learned myself. So sometimes the most annoying client turns out to be the most trusting because I've passed that initial, uh, you know, trial by fire type of experience. That's great insight. That's so good. Uh, I can tell you it's not unique to Chinese clients. Um, uh, a lot of of my Latin American clients are similar. They're very, you can have meetings. Everybody's just really nice. They tend to be very polite, um, but they're just being polite. <laughs> that doesn't mean that they love you forever. And you're gonna be you're gonna be married sometime soon. Uh, <laughs> but I love that. That's so good. Well, that's part of what I think is fun of of working with um, non-U.S. clients, wherever they may hail from, is you get to learn little cultural quirks, and it just sort of adds to the human interest piece of the equation. Definitely. 
Tony, it's so much fun to chat with you. Uh, I wish we could do this all day long, but I know you're busy and, and you've got to do other things. So if people are trying to find you, what is the best way for them to do that? Um, probably the, the website. Uh, our website is www.dsgwealth.com. Uh, dsgwealth.com happy to just collaborate and just uh you know brainstorm i think i i learn every time i work with a new new friend new advisor uh just i think we can learn from every uh every scenario and so happy to just chat with uh with friends with audience members yeah yeah that's excellent thank you so much and well of course i'll put the the contact information for tony in the show note tony again thank you so much i appreciate it Thank you, Brent. Hey, listeners. Thanks again for joining me on the podcast. It's fun to do it for you. If you're enjoying it, please subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to my blog at wealthandlaw.com and follow me on social media at wealthandlaw. I'll see you there.